how is your prayer life? How is your prayer life? Let me tell you where I'm not going today. I'm not going to go where I make you feel guilty uh, and, and then make you like want to run out of here. I certainly want to challenge you, but I also want to encourage you. But I, I just want you to answer that individually. How is your prayer life? It has been said that if you want to humble a Christian, you want to humble a brother and sister in Christ, just ask about their prayer life. The sad truth is that most Christians, even pastors, spend more time reading articles, binging on Netflix, and playing games on their phones than they do in prayer. Not everybody, but, but a lot do. But the Gospels, if we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are full of accounts, and it tells us about Jesus' immense prayer life. Many of you know the story of the Apostle Paul. You've, re you've read his letters, and the Apostle Paul's prayer life bleeds through every part of his letters. I mean, he's a praying man. Leonard Ravenhill, a pastor who has gone on to be with the Lord, he was a man who would spend eight hours a day in prayer. George Mueller, he prayed two to three hours a day and then recorded more than 50,000 answered prayers in his journals. Hudson Taylor awoke in the middle of the night to pray from two to four hours so that he wouldn't be disturbed. He made sure that he set that time aside to pray. So here we are in the epistle of James, the letter of James, and he's the half-brother of Jesus. But he had a nickname, and some of you will know this, but other of you will not know. Here's what his nickname was, Old Camel Knees. You ever seen a camel and their knees? Their knees are all worn out because they're, they're sitting on those knees all the time. So James was called Old Camel Knees because he developed calluses while kneeling in prayer. But let me ask this question, is what is effective prayer? Assuming that effective prayer is good prayer, what is it? What is effective prayer? How does it work? And then can we really influence the creator and sustainer of the universe uh, by our prayers? Can that really happen? And we're going to find out according to what God's Word says. So my sermon title for today is Effective Prayer. Effective Prayer. So with that in view, would you please stand so that we can read the Word of God together. Again, James 5, 13 through 20, the verses should be behind me. And I'll be reading out of the ESV translation. Verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let me pause. How about you? Anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let me pause there right now. Anybody here cheerful in the house? Uh, let him sing praises. 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him or her, anointing him or her with the oil, with oil in the name of the Lord. Just notice that, anointing him or her with oil in the name of the Lord. Verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person, it has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for Three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. 
Then Elijah prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Verse 19, my brothers, again, Christians, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So reads the holy and inerrant word of God. You may be seated. The first thing that I want us to notice in the text here, which I think is pretty straight ahead, is James lists three reasons to pray. There's certainly more reasons than this, but here's some of the three that he named. Again, going back to 13a, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. And then it says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And then it says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So we see three reasons to pray in our text this morning. We see suffering in verse 13. We see cheerfulness in verse 13. And then we see sick, if we're sick or we're ill, in verse 14. So the response, the responses that we see here, that they acknowledge something. That suffering and blessing, suffering and blessing come from the Lord who works through them to accomplish his purposes. Works through them meaning what? Meaning that the Lord works through what? Suffering and blessings. The Lord is working through both sufferings and blessings to accomplish his purposes, not just blessings. I want to talk a little bit about suffering in the context of this particular verse. Suffering could involve mental or emotional suffering. It could involve that. This could include physical suffering. This suffering could include doubt and anxiety. Anybody doubting or have anxiety this morning? It could even be financial difficulties or relational conflicts. There's lots of ways to suffer. And so the Bible is addressing these. James, the pastor here, is addressing this because it needs to be addressed. Don Carson uh, said these words, and here's the quote. He said, there is a certain kind of maturity that can be attained only through the discipline of suffering. Did you know there's a discipline of suffering? There certainly is. It's not easy to suffer, but there's certainly something that happens as we go through it. So there's a discipline that we learn things, we mature through the suffering. But the Bible again says if anyone is suffering, let him or let her pray. But don't just pray during the suffering, the, the verse also says it instructs us to pray when we're happy or when we're joyful, where things are going well. Look at 13b, the last half of verse 13. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. To literally sing praises, the, sing the word of God. This is what it tells us to do. So we're praying during the times of what? Drought and lack. When things aren't going so well, when things are going good, we're a praising people. That's, that's, that's who we are. So to be cheerful in this context means to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful. I'm sorry, that's not what that means, but let me give you a verse that speaks of being cheerful. It's Colossians 4.2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, 
being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Let me say that again. This is a parallel verse. I think that's helpful. That we are to be a people, Colossians 4, 2, to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So again, just saying what I've already said, it's a parallel verse. So we are to pray during the cheerful times. And as we pray during the cheerful times or sing these praises to the Lord, we are doing something in that worship. We are acknowledging the goodness of God. We know that it comes from God, the goodness of God, the thing, how he blesses us. And we also are acknowledging the grace of God. So the goodness of God and the grace of God are being, uh, they're being understood by one who does such things. So if things are going well, the Bible would say, do these things. You be cheerful. You sing your praises. Pray praises. Again, recapping what I've already covered, the reasons to pray, according to James, not limited to this, are when we're suffering, when we're cheerful. And now we read in verse 14, when we pray when we're sick. Again, it says in God's word, verse 14, is anyone among you sick? Is anyone among you sick? Anybody online sick? Now, again, this word could mean a lot of different things. Sick in this context means to be without strength. Have you ever been so sick that you had no strength, right? To be without strength. Or the effects of the prolonged sickness uh, perhaps leaves one bedridden. Do you know someone like that? Rod and Graciela do, and I'm sure many of you do as well. Maybe it's someone that has a debilitating sickness, and maybe because of such things, they're unable to come to church or they're unable to fellowship. However, uh, it could mean other things as well. This, this could also include both physical and spiritual sickness. It could include that as well. Again, let me read the full verse and just listen to what needs to be unpacked today and, and say, lucky you, pastor. Here it is. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Here's the fun part. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Again, reasons to pray. Suffering cheer, when you're cheerful and when you're sick. The second thing I want to point out is the results of prayer. And I think it starts to dig in to some things that we need to grab from the text. The results of prayer. So let's see what the results are of prayer according to the text in front of us. We see that in verses 14 and 15 again. Let me read. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Look at the beginning of verse 15. And the prayer of faith. And the prayer of of faith. Let me just pause there. Think about that. And the prayer of faith. This is a prayer offered in faith. Okay? Again, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So we see in the text that the results of prayer are really twofold. We see restored health, either spiritually or physically, and then the results of prayer are also forgiveness of sins. Do you see that in the text? 
that the results of such praying is the forgiveness of one's sins. Can happen. The, the results of such praying is restored health, either spiritually or physically. And the prayer of faith, again, going back to our text, and the prayer of faith will save one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. So the result of prayer like this in the text is restoration, okay? Restoration. The result of prayer in this context is restoration. And if he has, and then here's another one, so that's one thing, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven, okay? So the result of prayer is also forgiveness of sins. So we see restoration, and then we see the forgiveness of sins. That's the result of such a prayer. The prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You're going to read that in a second, different translation, but think about what's happening. Things are happening when we pray, right? Things are happening when we pray. So the results of prayer, restoration, and the forgiveness of sins. The third thing I want to point out is the requirements of answered prayer. The requirements of answered prayer. We see that found in verse 16. Let's look at that. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person, not an unrighteous person, the prayer of a righteous person has great power and it is working. And it is working according to James 5, 16. So the requirement of answered prayer is confession and righteous living. I promise to come back and put it all together. I know I'm giving you a lot of information. So the requirements of an answered prayer is confession and righteous living. We see, therefore, confess your sins. Then the prayer of a righteous person has great power. So James says something early in that verse, verse 16. Again, go back to it. James says, confess your sins. Confess your sins to who? To one another. It doesn't say you don't just, you can confess them to the Lord, but he's saying in this text, confess these sins to one another. And then he says, then pray for one another. Because the Christian faith is a one another faith. The Christian faith is a one another faith. So James is amplifying, he's illuminating the need for the people of God, the church of God, to be a confessing people and also a praying people. The two go together. So it's a confessing people and a praying people. Confessing people and a praying people. At Lakeshore, it would be safe to say that we are a confessing church. Matter of fact, in the service, We'll be calling people up to pray. Some people will be coming to pray for maybe a wayward son or daughter. Some might be coming up to pray because there's a, an illness. Maybe it's mom or dad or a daughter. Some don't know the Lord and they want to know, what do I, I just, I've heard the gospel and I want to respond to it. There'll be a plethora of reasons why people will come forward today in this service to pray. That's going to happen. You're going to, give that you're going to be given the opportunity to pray at the end of this service. So as people come up, Maybe as you come up, what are you going to confess? What are you going to share? Your needs? Your hurts? I guess what I'm trying to say, it's, it's different for everybody, but 
I've said this repeatedly, that the gospel, the church, is a community project. It's a community project. You see, when we pray, when God's people pray, as we're commanded to do in Scripture, it pulls something down. It pulls down barriers. It pulls down the barriers of self-sufficiency. It removes us when we're praying and praying for others from isolation. Pray, praying, it puts us in the community of believers. It allows the free flow of grace to invade those who you pray with and for and vice versa. It's doing something. It's not just words. God is doing something. He's in the midst of such a people. There's a verse that is really important to me. I believe it's important to you. All of God's verses, all the Word of God is important, but there's one that just I set aside and it ministers to my soul because it reminds me of you and the privilege it is to be your shepherd. It's found in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. It says, we cared so deeply that we're delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives as well. That is how beloved you have become to us. So it's not just the gospel and coming and reading. We're doing life with one another. And as we do life and share, we grow closer as a body. It's a beautiful verse, and I think it is a good supporting scripture of what, what James is trying to articulate to us today. So the requirement of answered prayer is confession and righteous living. Okay, I've said that already. So that's what he's getting at. That's what's in the text, confession and righteous living. Let's address righteous living. Righteous, what does he mean by that? The prayer of a righteous person has great power. Notice he doesn't say the prayer of an unrighteous person has power. He says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Okay, But the emphasis here is on practical, practical righteousness. Okay, Practicality, practical, right? This is the one who daily obeys God. Not perfectly, by the way. But the one who has a pattern in his or her life of obeying God. This is one who lives for God. This is the one who serves the Lord. Louise and I were out to dinner with uh, Janae and Kevin Miller the other day. And it was apparent that they love the Lord and the way that they speak. It was apparent to us that they, they want to uh, live a life that glorifies the Lord. They want to obey Him, knowing that they will never do it perfectly, but they want to live in such a way. Ron Gallerini is that way, and many of you. I could brag on many of you. But it's a way, this practical righteousness, to understand we're not better than anybody, we're just forgiven people. And that we can behave in such a way because of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. I like this parallel verse in Psalm 34, 5. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears towards their cry. Leonard Ravenhill said, you can't live wrong and pray right. How true it is. You see, the righteous understand a few things. They know that they have been made right. <laughs> They're not necessarily right. They've been made right. You see, They've been made righteous, and this is what's so cool about this. If you're in Christ, you know, we talk about Jesus has separated our sins as far as the east is from the west. He took our sins upon himself on that cross. A legal transaction took place. He took our sins, right? 
Because what's happening now, the righteous, if you're in Christ, you're righteous. And check this out. God, as he sees you, if you're in Christ, God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, sees you as he sees Jesus, his son. You're like, no, he doesn't see me like he sees Jesus. I mean, that's an exaggeration. No, no, he, he does. He sees you as righteous. He sees you as pure. He sees that your sins have been atoned for, not just the sins of today. You see, when Jesus was on that cross, he paid for your sins, the sins today and past and also in the present. Did you know that God knew what you'd do after you became a Christian? And he paid for those sins as well. You see, Raven Hill was a wise preacher, and he was known for his prayer life. I admire the prayer life of Leonard Ravenhill, and I admire the prayer life of Jim Cimbala. But Leonard Ravenhill has a quote that is long and lengthy. It's pithy, but it really makes you think, and I pray that it challenged you, encouraged you. It did both things for me. Let me, let me read it to you. Again, a quote from Leonard Ravenhill. He says, no man is greater than his prayer life. The pastor who is not praying is playing. The people who are not praying are straying. We have many organizers, but few agonizers, many players and payers, few prayers, many singers, few clingers, lots of pastors, few wrestlers, many fears, few tears, much fashion, little passion, many interferers, few intercessors, many writers, but few fighters. And then he says, failing here, we fail everywhere. But you've noticed that I've skirted around some key parts of the text. You may have noticed that. I like to go back to verse 14. Allow me to deal with this difficult text. And I pray as I do this, I do it with humility. Verse 14 says, is anyone among you sick? Again, remember we talked about what sick is in this context. It's to be without strength. It's the effect of a long sickness, perhaps. Maybe bedridden. Maybe it's a debilitating sickness. Maybe it's caused that person to be unable to be in fellowship. However, this could also include both physical and spiritual sickness. It could include both of those things. But notice in verse 14, is anyone among you sick? And then it says this. If someone's in that category, it says, now let him, him or her, call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him now listen, here's the action items. Pray over him and then anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Let me pause and just look at this text. And I want you to notice a couple of things. One, in this case, the person who is sick is to initiate the elders of the church to come and pray. Notice it's the sick that are to initiate. So we see that elders in a church... We see elders clearly in the church, that elders belong in the church, right? We see God's word. I think many of you would agree with that. Having elders in the church, which we have, is biblical. I thought it would be helpful just to explain uh, the qualifications of elders and then also what elders do. Allow me to read this. So elders, an elder is a man who meets the qualifications found in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 and Titus 1 six through nine. They are recognized by the congregation as an elder 
and they lead that congregation by teaching the word, according to 1 Timothy 3.2, praying for the sheep, that's James 5.14, and overseeing the affairs of the church, 1 Peter 5.2. This elder is also to provide oversight. They're overseers, and the overseer must watch after the flock, okay? This elder must instruct all the sheep. The elder has to strengthen the weak ones, guard the vulnerable ones, rebuke the obstinate ones, and bear with the difficult ones. If you're difficult, would you come forward at this time right now? <laughs> so an elder watches over the members of the church, and listen, and this elder will give an account to God according to Hebrews 13, 17. So it's a significant role, okay? So the elders of the church they go and pray over the sick. And it says they anoint that the sick with oil in the name of the Lord. In the name of the Lord. Some, uh, you know, what is this anointing oil, right? What is this? What are we talking about here? What's going on here? So some believe that the oil that's in question here is like sacramental. You know, it's like a it's, a, it's like a, a sacrament that's many would know that the Catholic Church would practice. Uh, they would believe that by doing these things, it would, remove, it, would, it would remove the remnants of sin and strengthen the soul in preparation for death. I, I don't agree with that. Uh, some scholars believe the oil to be medicinal. That's what they believe is going on here. Again, that the oil is to be medicinal. Some, some scholars believe that the oil in play here is more symbolic in its nature. Uh, my humble opinion is that the oil is, in fact, symbolic here. It is common in the scriptures to see anointing going on that, that symbolizes the setting apart of someone or something in the scriptures. It's this person or whatever it is is set apart for what? For, for, to be set apart for a particular purpose. We see that in the text. And some of you might be saying, I don't know if I agree uh, with your conclusion. That's okay. But I would also share something with you that I think you will agree with. I do believe that you will agree that the power of healing is not found in the oil, but in the God who answers the prayer. You would all agree with that, right? Right. And then maybe you go, I don't know if I, I don't agree with your conclusion still. I, I need a little bit more. What about this? I, I do believe you will agree that prayer is all over this section that I got done reading to you. When I had you stand so that we can read the Word of God, you saw that prayer was all over it. Was it seven times in the first five verses? We see prayer. I know you saw that. So the emphasis on the entire passage, just context, right, is prayer. So the oil is sec it's, it's secondary. It's not the point. It's not the point. I didn't say it wasn't important. I said it's not the point. Prayer is the point. And Jesus can heal any way that he wants to. Does Jesus still heal? I get that all the time. Of course he still does. He's God. He does whatever he wants. He sits in the heavens and does what he pleases. Jesus can heal any way that he wants. He brought healing uh, 
to a leper by touching him. Does Jesus really need to touch the leper? Why would he touch? Because I've told you, there's a touch and a touch. He touched him. He didn't have to touch him, by the way. He touched him. Jesus paused to speak to the woman at the well. He didn't have to do that. He did. Jesus came in contact with the woman who was caught in adultery. Remember that? And what did he do? He looked into her eyes. The scripture doesn't say, hey, when you're praying for people, make sure you pray and give a mighty prayer. But before you say in Jesus' name, look them right in the eyes because that's where the juice is at. No, it doesn't say that. So, but he did that. We see that. The woman was caught in adultery and Jesus looked into her eyes. Why am I saying this? To pray for others is to acknowledge someone else's humanity. It's a privilege that we get to do these things. To pray for others is to invite God into their human space and our human space. The elders of Lakeshore City Church want to pray for you. Not just when you're sick, but we want to pray for you. The church family, all the believers that are here today or not here today, they want to pray for you. And it's an honor to pray. It shows humility to want to pray. It's obedient to pray with our brothers and sisters in Christ. What a beautiful thing it is when the saints come together and pray and bear one another's burdens. You can't share burdens. You can't bear one another's burdens if you don't share burdens. But this example of Elijah in 17 and 18 it points out that our faith, the faith of Christians, believers, our faith must always be in accordance with God's promises. One author said this, everything that Elijah did in Kings 17 and 18 was in accordance with God's word. God said it would not rain and it didn't. And then God said rain was coming and it did. His word was accomplished. Elijah did not demand that God do something. He, wasn't, he was reluctant to do these things. Rather, Elijah prayed in accordance with God's word, trusting that God would keep his promises. The text is not saying that a prayer that is offered in faith will heal every single sick person. That's not what it says. Some believe that if we just have more faith and more faith, then we will get healed. But we've got to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. We've got to understand context. We've got to know what's going on here. We can't just isolate a few verses, pull them out. That's called eisegesis, right? We've got to exegete, right? We've got to look at the, the totality of what's going on here. So you know that Paul is a man of faith. You know this. Here is what Scripture says about Paul's affliction in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. It says three times, this is Paul, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that this affliction, whatever it is, should leave me. But he said to me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul, then therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may reset, may rest upon me. 
for the sake of Christ. Then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Question, according to that text, was Paul healed? No. Perhaps you're wondering, uh, wondering, doesn't Jesus say that when we pray in the name of the Lord, when we pray in Jesus' name, then he'll certainly do it? What about that? Well, again, let's look at Scripture. And again, as I'm saying this, I, I want it to be heard in humility. Okay, but I want to do it, I want to explain and illustrate using the Word of God. So, uh, again, let's let interpret Scripture interpret Scripture. John 14, 14. Is it behind me? Say yes. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Well, let's just grab that then, right? That's what it looks like, right? But the phrase, in my name, gives us the answer. To ask for something in the name of Christ is to ask for something according to his word and for his glory when we exegete and pull the text out, right? So here is the key. It's God's will be done and make your wants God's wants. God, it's your will be done. I can see you doing great things no matter what happens. I trust you with my So sometimes when we hear this, you know, uh, you know, I'm just going to have more faith and then God's going to do it. He's going to heal the person with cancer. God does heal people with cancer, but he doesn't do it every single time. So when we start thinking that God's going to heal every single time, you'll start blaming yourself by saying things like if you just had more faith. That's one thing that could happen. That's not good. Or something else more likely to happen, which is you begin to resent God because you start saying things, if God really loved me, if he cared about me, he would have done these things. And that's a dangerous, slippery slope. And what you're doing is you're putting yourself in place of God. You're not reading the scripture for what it says. It's what you want, and you don't allow God to use the ailments or the affliction for his glory as he did for the apostle Paul. So I want to give you some application in just a few seconds, but effective prayer is both vertical and horizontal. Vertical and horizontal. We pray to the Lord, we pray with one another. Effective prayer believes that God can heal us physically, yet more importantly, God heals us spiritually. A true believer wants his will to be done. The true believer wants God's will to be done. A true believer knows that God will use the affliction for his glory. And there's growth when it, sometimes we say, I feel like my week has been one of these weeks. I feel like I'm always in the mouth of a lion. There's a lot of growth when you're in the mouth of the lion. Just pray that the lion don't bite. The prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You saw that in the text today. Again, righteous. It's because of what Christ has done. You're made righteous. Sin has been atoned for because of what Christ has done. Death has been defeated because of what Christ has done. Righteous is, again, standing in front of God, pure, righteous, holy. That God sees you as undefiled, pure, a set-apart people because of what Christ 
has done. He makes you righteous. So what do we do? Practical application. Let me give you five things. Confess to God. Confess to one another. Remind yourself that suffering is an opportunity to glorify God. And if you're cheerful, sing psalms. Sing praises. Turn back and give the praise where it belongs to the Lord. And the fifth thing, do all of this together in the church. Because we're a one another people. We've got a one another faith. So I guess one of the questions that we can ask today by that last verse is, are you wandering uh, from God? Is there anybody in this place who knows the Lord, but they're wandering, they're a prodigal, they're not engaged, they've checked out. The Lord will invite us to come home today. We see that in the text. As I've shared oftentimes, my dear friend, uh, Rosa Stedman, lost her battle uh, with ALS. And as Louise and I sat at her bedside during her final breath, one of the things she said, uh, you know, shortly before she died, is I asked her, how can I pray for you, dear Rosa? And she said, uh, she gave me uh, 3 John 1, 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are following or walking in the truth. Not all of Rosa's children are Christians, according to Mama, at that time. What a thing to pray on your deathbed. That's what would bring that Mama a lot of joy. That her children would be found walking in the truth. So we prayed, and I continue to pray for that. So moms, a couple things. For those of you who've lost your child or your sons or daughters have lost one, lost them both, lost the one you had. God is in the midst and he's doing something. For those of you who've had countless miscarriages this year, God is doing something. He's not going to waste it. Is it painful? It's excruciating. For some of you dealing with wayward kids, it's painful. I don't know your story, but the text teaches us to go to the Lord and ask for help. It's a privilege. I wonder if anybody today, when they come up and get prayer, will be praying that their children would walk in the truth. Maybe more than a few. As I close, I want to encourage you to just think about what you heard today. Think about what encouraged you. Think about what maybe gave you some conviction. You just were convicted over it. Then ask yourself, is it clear what my next steps are? If it is, do that. If you're confused, get prayer. But God will help. He'll sustain us all because that's who he is. He loves us. He will give us a hope and a future. Acknowledge the cross. Acknowledge that you put him on the cross. 
but acknowledge that you need your sins atoned for. And if you go to him in humility and say, Father, I know that I've sinned against you and you alone, he will save you. For those who call upon the name of the Lord, he will save them. And if you truly are saved, you will love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. He will, in fact, finish the good work that he started in you. And that, my friends, is the gospel.